Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Thank you, Alan, and welcome to the show. For those tuning in for the first time, I'm Fred Paul, and my show on ADH TV will bring you the most compelling and entertaining views and opinions every Monday to Thursday at 9 p.m. ADH is the fastest growing streaming broadcaster in Australia and the new home for common sense commentary. It's easy to watch us. Simply download the ADH app on your phone, Apple TV, or other devices from your usual app store. All our content is there live and on demand. You can also listen to our shows on podcast. Just search for ADH TV wherever you stream or download your audio programs. Now, as I said last night, we all waited with bated breath to see if Nancy Pelosi, who holds the third most powerful position in the United States government, touched down in Taiwan last night. And thankfully she did. The significance of her successful visit to the island nation can't be understated. Pelosi is now the first high-ranking US government official to visit Taiwan in 25 years. Chinese President Xi Jinping has made, it, made reunification of Taiwan with mainland China by force, if necessary, a core commitment of his government. So whatever you think about Pelosi, and there are plenty of reasons to conclude she has caused more harm than good during her 35 years in Washington, you really must admire her for getting on that plane. Pelosi's visit was supported by US aircraft carrier USS Ronald Reagan, amphibious assault ship USS Tripoli, and Marine F-35 Lightning Joint Strike Fighters. China was unequivocally belligerent about Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Chinese foreign ministry spokesman said, quote, if you play with fire, you will get burned and the People's Liberation Army will not sit idly by. If Pelosi visits Taiwan, China will take, quote, resolute and strong countermeasures, unquote. The Chinese military's Eastern Theater Command said its soldiers have vowed to, quote, fight to the death as they prepared warships, tanks, and fighter planes. The Taiwanese president's website was reportedly under a cyber attack by Chinese hackers yesterday, and anonymous callers, presumably supporters of the Chinese regime, made bomb threats to Songshan Airport and Taiyuan Airport. Yesterday, Chinese propagandist Hu Shijing threatened that China could shoot down Pelosi's plane if it landed in Taiwan. Threats don't get much more specific than that. The Chinese government said it might shoot down a plane 
carrying the third most powerful politician in the United States. But then came the astonishing backflip. Chinese Communist Party mouthpiece, the Global Times, said China had decided it, quote, has no interest in getting involved in a spat with an 82-year-old lady, unquote. All right. After threatening for days to start World War III, this was suddenly just a misunderstanding with an old lady? Yeah, sure. As Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu said almost two and a half thousand years ago, quote, appear weak when you are strong and strong when you're weak. China spent the days leading up to Pelosi's visit appearing strong. If Sun Tzu is right, then the real China is probably the opposite. In fact, video footage showed Chinese amphibious tanks having to weave through heavy traffic on their way to the Chinese coast adjacent to Taiwan. The decisive, resolute and strong countermeasures China threatened never eventuated. China is now increasingly isolated. The only nation to support it was Russia, where the Kremlin took a moment from bombing Ukraine to issue a statement saying Pelosi's visit was provocative. In fact, it looks like the best China could come up with in response to the visit was to summon the US ambassador in Beijing and rebuke him. That's not very tough. The message for Australia is clear. The West and our allies can call China's bluff if we remain strong. As I said last night, China is not as strong as it wants us to think. Its property sector is crumbling and ordinary investors are being ripped off. The country is heavily reliant on imports for all its iron, iron ore and oil, and it is losing friends right across the Asia Pacific. Some of the biggest protests since, protests since Tiananmen Square in 1989 are occasionally breaking out, mostly against mismanagement and COVID lockdowns. Internal tensions are mounting within the CCP as leader Xi Jinping's support starts to fracture and the world is becoming more and more aware that it can't rely on, Chi on Chinese manufacturing anymore. In fact, it looks like the only thing China has going for it at the moment is the self-inflicted vulnerability of us in the West. If not for our ludicrous net zero emissions policies, Australia would have the cheapest energy in the world. We would be bringing back our manufacturing jobs from China and buying goods made here. We would again be a strong, independent and sovereign nation, the kind that doesn't need to kowtow to a bigger neighbour. If our new Labor government wants to virtue signal on the world stage, and it's clear that it does, perhaps this is the message it should be making. Australia always was and always can be a force for good in the region, regardless of our arbitrary and pointless emissions targets. Now, Australia's schools have for most of our lives been staffed and run by dedicated professionals who sought to give even the most disruptive kids enough basic skills to function in society. And as a result, Australia has, has been mostly a country of people who couldn't easily be fooled. Or as I put it on Monday night, quoting the late great cartoonist Bill Leake, we were a nation that called bullshit wherever we saw it. 
or we used to be. These days, we are surrounded by lies and deception and an alarming number of people are simply oblivious to it, or worse, fooled by it. Similarly, it's getting increasingly difficult not to conclude that the people who are deceiving us on such grand scales these days are not only aware they are lying, but are also aware that they are systematically destroying the country we once knew. It's one of the reasons we here at ADHTV get out of bed in the mornings, and it's clearly one of the reasons you tune into our shows. The Australia we grew up in has disappeared and it is being replaced by something we are all deeply uncomfortable with. Few things illustrate this better than the education system itself. Now, this is not to say there are no good teachers in the system. There are, and teaching is a noble profession. But the system has for the past two decades, if not longer, been increasingly obsessed with indoctrinating our kids with mindless, woke rubbish in lieu of the basic education we grew up with. So they can barely function as adults, let alone deal with the complex challenges of life. When I used to drop my kids off at primary school a decade and a half ago, I used to do so knowing that I'd later need to find ways of drumming out of their young minds whatever superficial environmental rubbish the curriculum was trying to force into them. But these days, parents wish they were that lucky. The latest national school curriculum, which was aptly passed by all state and federal governments on April 1 this year, and will be introduced next year, is a monument of interconnected wokeness. Where education used to be based on literacy and numeracy, it is increasingly focused on two new concepts. The historical fiction that Australia was stolen from the in original inhabitants and is therefore partly illeg illegitimate, and the overarching fear that everything we do is in one way or another destroying the planet. I'm not joking, the new curriculum is online and its priorities are clear when you search the words in it. Sustainability appears 281 times, more so than, for example, multiplication, which only appears 274 times, and far more often than grammar, which crops up a paltry 72 times. Who needs spelling and punctuation when the only things you write are on a device that corrects these for you anyway? And as for Shakespeare, well, the bard is mentioned a grand total of once. There is something rotten in the state of our education system. This is not going to produce positive, hardworking, independent and creative adults. So imagine the dilemma of parents who have been dropping their kids off at school at the school gates these past few months. Compounding all this indoctrination is the fact that we are now going through possibly the worst teacher shortage in our history. Parents dropping their kids off this morning did so knowing that some of the classes scheduled today would not have a teacher in them. Some schools are operating on three quarters of the normal staff level and classes are simply going untaught. Ironically, this would leave parents with mixed feelings. What's better, a class with no teacher or a class with a teacher at the front brainwashing students into thinking that Australia is evil and that they are all destroying the planet? It's almost funny until you remind yourself that this is our kids' future we're talking about here and that we are paying through the nose 
for a system that will fail whichever way it goes. The whole facade is based on a simple conceit, which former treasurer Josh Frydenberg repeated in the budget papers when he brought down the budget papers in March this year. The papers said, quote, the government is investing record funding in Australian schools to ensure that all students are equipped with the necessary skills as part of our plan for a stronger future. Now set aside that Frydenberg was boasting about spending a record amount of our money, profligacy has been a measure of good government ever since Gough Whitlam almost broke the nation's finances in 1975. And look instead at the sleight of hand. Record expenditure will ensure the best outcome. This doesn't pass basic mathematics. No matter how much we increase our expenditure on education, our standards barely improve. Our ranking on the Program for International Student Assessment, which tests kids from around the world and compares the results, has not changed since 2015, despite our increasing outlay on education. According to NAPLAN, the number of Year 9 students who can meet or exceed national or minimal standards has fallen from 95% in 2013 to 83% in 2019. Clearly, it's not a problem of how much money we spend on education. And some parents are voting with their feet. The number of kids being homeschooled in Victoria, for example, went from 4,433 in 2016 to 7,296 in 2020. That's an increase of 53% in four years. Now these numbers are still a tiny percentage of total students, but one imagines the number has exploded even more since the pointless Victorian virus lockdowns, when many exasperated parents would have taken their kids out of school permanently. The Victorian government says, quote, we do not ask parents why they register their children for homeschooling, unquote. As if they need to. Remember, these are parents who still pay for the education system, but are opting out of it anyway. Now, in some ways, it's unfair to single out Frydenberg, who is no longer in Parliament anyway, as responsible for this. He's not. The constant decline in educational quality is being perpetrated by politicians at every level who have no awareness that the results will be a disaster for Australia. Again, this is not to say that there are not good teachers in the system, and any who remain there and are trying against the odds to imbue kids with a love of real knowledge, devoid of ideology, deserve our eternal gratitude. But you have to wonder about the motives of the people trying to transform our formerly functional schools into mindless indoctrination centres. Is there a more sinister reason why they want to produce generations of kids who can't think for themselves? Now, if there's one politician who represents everything that's wrong with this country, it's Green Senator Lydia Thorpe. In Parliament this week, Lydia branded the Queen as a coloniser while reciting the Oath of Allegiance mandatory for all parliamentarians. Well, please recite the affirmation on the card handed to you. I 
Sovereign Lydia Thorpe, who solemnly and sincerely affirm and declare that I will be faithful and I bear true allegiance to the colonising Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Senator Thorpe. Senator Thorpe, you are required to recite the oath as printed on the card, so please recite the oath. Uh, Senator Thorpe, Senator Thorpe, order. I, Lydia Thorpe, do solemnly and sincerely affirm and declare that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, her heirs and successors according to law. Uh, Senator Thorpe, please sign the test roll and senator's roll. Now, we see a lot of words redefined these days, but I think we just saw the redefinition of the word sincerely. Let me repeat what she said, quote, I, sovereign Lydia Thorpe, do solemnly and sincerely swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to the colonising Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, unquote. Meanwhile, Thorpe walked through the Senate with her arm held up with a clenched fist like she's some sort of hardcore revolutionary from the early 20th century, clearly forgetting that she was voted in by a mob of skinny, blue-haired, mask-wearing vegan socialists from inner-city Melbourne. But this is not a joke. Lydia is dead serious, and so are her supporters. These people hate Australia, and they have no clue about our history. We have more to be proud of than any other nation on earth, and the facts are clear. Australia sought to be the very opposite of an oppressive, racist, colonial state from the beginning. And it stands out in history as perhaps the first nation to do so. Our founding father, Governor Arthur Phillip, declared that, quote, there can be no slavery in a free land, and consequently, no slaves. While the, merchant, while the merchant fleets of Liverpool were transporting slaves to the Americas, Britain's Caribbean colonies were dependent on slave labour, and slavery was rife in the Raj at the time. Philip barred slavery in New South Wales eight months before the leader of the British abolitionist movement, William Wilberforce, first took up the issue in the House of Lords. After Philip was ordered by King George III to, quote, endeavour by every possible means to open an intercourse with the natives and to conciliate their affections, enjoining all subjects to live in amity and kindness with them, unquote. He announced that, quote, any man who takes the life of a native will be put on trial the same as if he'd killed one of the garrison. Unquote. And even when speared through the shoulder by an Aboriginal warrior at Manly Cove in September 1790, Philip refused to retaliate, resulting in the re-establishment of good relations and with Benelong coming to Sydney with his wife in November 1790. The point is, well, it's very clear. Australia is not founded on a racist colonial oppression. We have every right to be proud of our history 
and we should ignore unhinged career activists like Lydia Thorpe, who celebrate the burning down of old Parliament House by Aboriginal activists back in January, even though it was in old Parliament House where Aboriginals were granted full voting rights in 1962, the Constitution was amended in 1967 to allow the Commonwealth to make laws for Aboriginal people and include them in the census, and more importantly, where Neville Bonner, the first Aboriginal to become a member of Parliament, worked for over 12 years between 71 and 83. To sum up, this Lydia Thorpe is a joke. We can all do without her theatrical ways, which only seek to divide us, not unite us. Now you look around the country at the moment, and it's hard to find good centre-right voices in the media, especially on radio. The current offering is full of shallow viewpoints and gotcha moments, just to generate a headline. One broadcaster who is a fair dinkum conservative is Bre breakfast talkback host Stephen Senatiempo. You can listen to Stephen on 2CC radio in Canberra each morning, 5.30am to 9am. Before he joins me on the show, I'm going to ask him about this. There was a piece in the Sydney Morning Herald today by former Attorney General George Brandis, in which he says Australians won't give politicians a blank cheque with this Indigenous voice to Parliament. And he's right. They're asking us to approve something we know little about. That's like buying a car without looking under the bonnet. As George Brandis wrote in his column today, quote, the message coming from the Gama Festival last weekend were a mixture of enthusiasm and confusion. That confusion was on display during the program Q&A on Monday night when neither the panellists nor the audience seemed to understand what the voice to parliament actually meant, unquote. Well, that's a worry. But you know what? We've seen this movie before, haven't we? The Republican movement has been telling us for decades that the most important thing is that we have an Australian head of state. Despite the flawed and inconclusive models they occasionally propose, Republicans are still telling us, forget about the details, let's just change the constitution. This strategy never works. I'm astounded that the Indigenous Affair, Affairs Minister, Linda Burney, thinks she can pull this off. The punters are just not going to fall for it. Let's see what Stephen thinks. He joins me from Canberra. Stephen, welcome to the show. Fred, thanks for having me. Good to be on. Now, the million dollar question. Should the public just throw their hands up in the air and allow politicians to introduce a constitutional Indigenous voice to Parliament? Well, of course not. I mean, the Prime Minister's proposition is basically, trust me, I'm a politician. And, you know, I mean, he spent the last, uh, the entire election campaign telling us that we don't trust politicians anymore. Apparently, that's why we've got all these Teal Party candidates that made it that made it through to the parliament in the last election. And look, whether or not you think a voice, an Indigenous voice to parliament is the correct thing to do or not, there's got to be some detail. You can't just say, well, look, Let's put it through and we'll tell you how it's going to work later down the track because, I mean, this is incredibly important. I mean, my thought has always been that a voice to parliament was called a ballot box. Uh, what we are doing here is creating two separate classes of Australian and I thought that was what we were trying to avoid. Geez, you sound a bit cynical there, Stephen. Don't you trust politicians? Oh, just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, when, what many of these Labor politicians and radical left-wing activists fail to tell the public, which you've alluded to, is that there are now 11 Indigenous MPs in the National Parliament. 
Stephen, that's a pretty solid block in terms of rep representation for Indigenous Australians. Isn't that a sign that our democracy is already functioning just fine? Absolutely. And I think the important aspect of that is even amongst those 11 Indigenous members of parliament, there is a varied view on this voice to parliament. I mean, you've got some that are uh, like Linda Burney that are 100% in favour and then others like the, the amazing Jacinta Price who thinks that it's going to be a problem. And, you know, I mean, even amongst the, the broader Indigenous community and you know, various prominent Indigenous leaders, there is so much difference of opinion on how this thing should work if it goes ahead or whether it should go ahead or not. So, I mean, that should be enough uh, to say to the government that, well, if you want to push ahead with this, you've got to give us some detail. Well, very true. The thing that gets me, Stephen, is that here was Albo on election night claiming he will unite the country, yet all we've seen from this Labor government is an agenda that will divide us. Am I being fair or cynical Absolutely. here, Absolutely. No, I think you're being 100% right. And, that, and that's my, my argument about creating two classes of Australian. If the, if the concept of reconciliation and closing the gap and, and all these other buzz terms that we hear is about bringing uh, Indigenous Australians and European Australians together, well, you don't do that by separating them and telling them that they have two different uh, qualities of voice when it comes to how, how we act with our politicians and our voice to the parliament, which is supposed to represent all of us. Well, just moving to something I saw today, which is going to stun our viewers. It's an advertising campaign mm -hmm. by the Queensland government. It called on interstate <laughs> tradies to move to Queensland to work, uh, to work at, uh, cost the tax, which would cost the taxpayer $1.9 million. That's the advertising campaign. You heard that right. Two million bucks for an advertising yep. campaign. Now, Stephen, tell me, how many tradies do you think this Tradies in Paradise scheme attracted? Uh, well, I'm guessing probably close to none, but they've got to fill up that WellCamp facility somehow, don't they? <laughs> well, you're, you're more cynical than me now, Stephen. Well, actually, <laughs> look, it did, it did work, but all it attracted was two tradies. Two tradies under the scheme after 12 applications and 870 expressions of interest. God knows what happened to the other 868. But anyway, Stephen, will, will Queensland... I hope they were both plumbers. <laughs> Will Queenslanders wake up to Anastasia Palaszczuk's tired old government, do you think? Yeah, look, I, I think finally, particularly with David Crisofulli as the opposition leader in Queensland, they're, they're, the, the coalition's starting to make some ground there. Or, sorry, when I say the coalition, the LNP in Queensland. Um, Crisofulli seems like a, a fairly straight shooter and, a, and a, a straight up and down bloke, and I think he's getting some cut through. And look, I, I mean, there's no question that this Palaszczuk government is stale. And you'd like to think Queenslanders would wake up to it sooner rather than later. I mean, uh, I, you, how many scandals can you go through and how much um, stench of corruption can you cop before you decide to give somebody that looks like a straight shooter a go? Well, let's move from Queensland to Tasmania. I raised this on my show last night, but what about the Hobart Council's woke plans to remove the, state mm. of, the statue of Tasmania's 15th Premier, William Crowther, from Franklin Square? What do you make of that one? I mean, it's just, look, what it really highlights is, and it's a problem we've got here in the ACT, is that when you elect parliaments via the Duckworth-Lewis system, sorry, the Hare Clark system, they insist that I call it, <laughs> um, when you've got parliaments of only 25 people of uh, semi-professional politicians who get elected with a handful of votes, you're going to come up with this rubbish. I mean, the, the erasure of history is extraordinary, particularly when you think of the 
the context of this voice to parliament that we're talking about at the moment where um, we're talking people are talking about truth telling well surely truth telling includes all of history not just the bits that you like I raised this last night. How can you live in a free society and hate it at the same time? It doesn't make sense, Stephen. But look, get this. The removal, no. the removal of, this, of this sculpture, this statue, will cost around 20 grand. But there are also plans to move it elsewhere. elsewhere. So what's the point? Uh, look, it, well, I mean, as most things that come out of Tasmania, I don't think there is much point. Lovely place to go and visit, but I feel sorry for my friends that live down there. <laughs> Uh, this bronze statue was erected in 1889, so just leave it there for goodness sake. Now, Stephen, with all this rainfall, can't we just go back to the good old days when councils worried about potholes? <laughs> Don't get me started on potholes, Fred. We've got a council here in Canberra that just ignores them altogether. And um, luckily, I... Um, I, I have a sponsor that gives me a car, so I don't have to worry about repairs to the rims, but average Canberrans do. Uh, now, look, Stephen, you speak to people on the open line every morning on your 2CC program. Tell me what they're saying. Mm -hmm. uh, what stories are you hearing when it comes to especially the cost of living pressures? They're pretty high down there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the biggest thing is housing affordability here in the ACT, and that's because the government uh, has a, a, a deliberate policy of trying to raise or increase uh, property prices so that their rates haul goes up. I mean, we've got a government here that's broke. A, um, the budget was handed down yesterday and we've got a, a, a debt that is going to go from about $6 billion to $9.5 billion over the next uh, couple of years. Um, they are desperate for cash and trying to scrounge it out wherever they can. But it's getting to the point here where it, you, you can't afford, average Canberrans can't afford to buy a house. They're being forced to live in apartments. The government has a what they call an 80% infill policy where they want everybody to live in somebody else's backyard. And uh, because people are buying apartments, they say, see, well, it's clearly working. Well, the reason, reason people are buying apartments is they don't have any sort of choice. But here in Canberra, our cost of living is not just, I mean, housing affordability and the rental crisis is the important thing. But our co the cost of petrol here is higher than almost anywhere else in the country. Uh, we've got uh, our health system is crumbling. Our education system is crumbling. We've got uh, lower numbers of police per capita than anywhere else in the country. There are so many things that are going wrong here. Cost of living is only just one of them, sadly. Well, you can't criticise them about the cost of petrol, Stephen. I mean, they're doing something about that, aren't they? They're going to make everyone drive electric cars. No. <laughs> yeah, and apparently you, you, there won't be any charging facilities, so you'll charge it up when you go to the gym in the morning, the Environment Minister tells us. <laughs> you might find the gyms are actually connected to the charging stations. You're actually charging it while you're walking on the treadmill. <laughs> now, listen, Stephen. Do you Indeed. Think <laughs> Do you think Anthony Albanese, uh, Anthony Albanese and Jim Chalmers, when they stop talking about this voice to parliament, do you think they'll ever get around to understanding these pressures that ordinary people are under? Well, I, look, I don't know that um, there's any a lot of chance of that because, I mean, if you look right across our parliament, mostly on the Labor side, but on both sides, there's very few politicians that have actually had a real job and had to worry about where their next paycheck comes from. So it's going to be impossible for them to understand what the rest of us are going through on a day-to-day -day basis. But I think the reality is going to hit home, particularly to Jim Chalmers, very, very quickly. And I think this honeymoon period that is clearly uh, um, the government's clearly enjoying is going to evaporate very, very quickly, and certainly in the lead-up to October when they hand down their first budget. 
Yeah, the way it looks, mate, I think it's going to be one of the shortest honeymoons in Australian political history, the way they're heading. Um, mm. Stephen, just before you go, there's a debate about whether or not the Labor government should continue the coalition's cut in fuel excise. What is the responsible thing to do here, you think? Uh, look, I think the responsible thing to do is permanently continue. I, I don't like the concept of excises in general, the concept of taxing people as a punishment for using a product. So uh, I think given that uh, the ongoing pressures coming out of the invasion of Ukraine look like they're going to go on for quite some time, I, I think the government's got to continue this. I know it's a hit to the bottom line and I know that the finances are in a bad way, but you know, Australians are hurting. And, you know, I, I mean, I put half a tank of fuel in my car yesterday and nearly cried when I left the Bowser. Oh, mate, yeah. I, I feel your pain, mate. Well, all I know is that we need to rein in government spending. Our taxes are being sprayed up against the wall on all sorts of rubbish yep. ideas while families are struggling. Stephen, great to talk to you and keep up the good work down in Canberra. Thanks, Fred. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Stephen. That's Stephen Senatiempo, who hosts The Breakfast Show on 2CC in Canberra. Now, I said earlier, we're shortchanging the nation's youth by giving them an education that fails to prepare them for life's challenges, while also convincing them that the world is about to end as a result of climate change. This would be regrettable enough, but it's not the whole story. We're making young people's lives even more difficult by obstructing them from buying their own homes. Like education, this has been a slow process that we barely saw happening. But now the figures are in, and there is no denying it. Property owners are enjoying a windfall from a system that is almost deliberately designed to keep supply low and young people from entering the market. It works like this. The Australian adult population can, can be divided into three almost equal groups. Those who've paid off their homes, those who are still paying off their homes, and those who are renting and hoping one day to buy. Generally speaking, you can say these groups correlate with age. The older you are, the more likely you are to have bought, then paid off the home. Now, a house isn't what it used to be under, say, the Prime Ministership of Robert Menzies from 1949 to 1966. In his famous Forgotten People speech of 1943, Menzies waxed, waxed lyrical about the symbolic significance of a man's home. Quote, My home is where my wife and children are. The instinct to be with them is the great instinct of civilised man, the instinct to give them a chance in life, to make them leaners, not lifters. Sorry, not leaners, but lifters. This is a noble instinct, unquote. How often do you hear politicians say things like that these days, linking old-fashioned domestic bliss with the raising of tough, independent children? The politics of home ownership is now largely financial. When the Labor government deregulated the financial industry in the 1980s, it made home mortgages not only more competitive, but also more flexible. Suddenly, people were able to use property equity to buy new cars and holidays, and the homes themselves became more symbols of status than the sacred places Menzies described. Since then, their dollar values have soared. The value of houses in Melbourne have quadrupled in real terms since 1982, 
In Sydney, they've tripled. Property owners might not have worked for this wealth, but governments know they fiercely defend it. Labor tentatively proposed to take some heat out of the housing market by reducing the benefits of buying investment properties during the 2019 federal election campaign. The idea was thoroughly mocked, even by working class people, some of whom had managed to become property investors themselves. Both major parties now know not to jeopardise the precious gains property owners have made. Both parties could, of course, partially solve this problem by proposing to scrap the absurd policy of enforced superannuation. As former Victorian MP, Liberal MP, Tim Wilson said in his book, The New Social Contract, young people traditionally are focused on buying a house. And as they get older, having paid off the house, they then turn their attention to retirement savings. The compulsory, the compulsory superannuation brought in by then Treasurer Paul Keating in 1991 reversed that. Young people entering the workforce are now forced to deposit part of their wages in accounts that will be locked up for 40 years. The benefits or otherwise of compulsory super could be debated all night, but the upshot here is that money should be, that money should be used instead to buy homes. Politicians pay lip service to this problem as if their paltry offers to tinker at the edges of the home ownership problem will somehow make it easier for young generations to enter the market. They won't, and we all know it. The solution is very simple. Increase supply. Australia is a big country with no shortage of space for young people to buy land and build homes. And we have a can-do culture that's not discouraged by the challenges of turning arid land into functional neighbourhoods but doing that would increase supply and reduce the value of, exist of existing stock. Politicians know that homeowners who outnumber the renters would never tolerate that. So we're stuck with a generation of young people who are being prevented from buying homes and the inevitable next step, starting a family. The flow on effects for Australia are, are profound. Our national fertility is dropping and we increasingly need to import workers to do basic jobs. And our youth are understandably not as attached to the nation as they would be if they owned a piece of it. Menzies himself called owning a house having, quote, a stake in the country. Recently, the Institute for Public Affairs conducted a survey asking Australians if they would stay and defend the country if it was invaded by a bigger aggressor, as Ukraine, Ukraine recently was, by Russia. Overall, 20% said they would rather flee, which is startling enough. But the younger the respondent, the more likely they were to choose to flee. 38% of those aged 25 to 34, increasing to 40% of those aged 18 to 24. You can see why. You can see why this generation is also vulnerable to globalist organisations like the World Economic Forum. The WEF recently produced an advertisement pro promoting its plan to take over the world's economies. In it, under a photograph of a smiling millennial was the slogan, you will own nothing 
and you will be happy. Young Australians would probably think that's pretty tempting. After all, the way things are, they don't own much anyway. Now tonight I started the show by talking about US Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. I made the critical point that the US has called China's bluff. We've seen the communist regime issue some of the most extreme threats imaginable while Pelosi prepared to fly to Taiwan and a US Navy aircraft carrier and battleship circled around the South China Sea. If Pelosi had touched down in, if Pelosi touched down in Taiwan, Xi Jinping's sycophants said there'd be, quote, resolute and strong countermeasures. They said the People's Liberation Army will, quote, not sit idly by. One Chinese propagandist even claimed China could shoot down Pelosi's plane if it landed in Taiwan, but nothing happened. In fact, the Chinese, now clearly embarrassed, have dismissed the significance of Pelosi's visit, saying it, quote, has no interest in getting involved in a spat with an 82-year-old lady. Well, this might be partly true. The current government in the US is so utterly batty that the CCP might still be trying to work out what the hell they're up against. I mean, would you pick a fight with this woman and her equally batty friends in Washington? On behalf of the United States Congress, as a, 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 is just unwavering that you were what? What? Sorry? Perhaps Pelosi was caught up thinking about her stock portfolio. And to be frank, you can't blame her. For those who don't know, Pelosi has amassed an absolute fortune on the stock market while she's been in Congress, all while China has been militarizing and America has been on the decline. Over the past 10 years, Pelosi has made about $30 million in tech stocks, according to Republican con Congressman Scott Perry. At the same time, she was negotiating legislation impacting America's tech sector. In 2020, Pelosi and her husband made an insane $16.7 million on the money they invested, a return of more than 50%. Meanwhile, the, wor the world's largest investment bank, BlackRock, could only make a return of 13%, and Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway only went up by 2%. It gets worse. Nancy bought Tesla stocks right before Biden signed off on pro-electric vehicle laws. She bought options on 4,000 shares of Google right before the House Judiciary Committee voted on antitrust regulation, making her and her husband $5 million on this call alone. All this was done while the average Joe would have been thrown in prison if he got caught making such trades with inside information. Talk about double standards. But this is the side of, this is the state of politics right across the West. In Australia, we have self-serving politicians who make decisions about critical policies like net zero based on what will most benefit them, their career and their political faction. We have green billionaires like Simon Holmes Accord who finance pro-green independents like Zali Stegall and Zoe Daniels right into parliament. We have politicians who are happy to sell our critical infrastructure to the Chinese Communist Party for short-term political gain. Think the, the port of Newcastle. That's the world's largest coal export port, and it's half owned by the Chinese. Or think of Port Darwin. Think of Energy Australia and Alinta Energy, both of which are owned by Chinese companies. 
It's a strangely volatile world at the moment, but you've got to count your blessings. At least crazy old Nancy didn't start World War III this week. Well, that's it from me. Thanks so much for your company. And again, tell your friends to download the ADH TV app on their phones and televisions, or where all our rapidly expanding content is available live and on demand. And I'll see you tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Good night.